This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. This week's guest is Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Jim Mulhern next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. With crop prices falling, farm income plummeting, and Mother Nature wrecking havoc, the private sector crop insurance infrastructure is more important today than ever. Providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The National Milk Producers Federation is celebrating its centennial this year. President and CEO Jim Mulhern says the cyclical nature of the dairy industry is proving itself again this year. Mulhern says these are tough times for dairy farmers. We came off of, frankly, the best year ever in 2014, highest milk prices in history. Uh, it was a very good year, and 2015 was not as good. Prices were down, export demand uh, weakened in, in 2015. A number of factors were part of that. Uh, but that situation that we that uh, the downturn that began in 2015 has continued into 2016. So we're seeing milk prices this year um, even lower than last year's. So it's a tough time right now. Um, we have a very profitable period. Uh, we're now um, in a uh, an unprofitable period. Hopefully, we're at the trough, the bottom of that uh, of this period. Um, but it looks like it may take a while to uh, to climb back to uh, uh, to to you know, much better times that we saw in 2014. Well, the National Milk Producers Federation uh, celebrating its centennial, you're accustomed to a cyclical business. Is this extreme? It's not extreme in the, from the standpoint of comparing it to, say, what we faced in, in 2009. We're not at those catastrophic low levels in, in terms of, of price and margin. Uh, but it certainly is a stressful period. Uh, and you're right, Jeff, this is an industry like all of all the production agriculture uh, that does face cyclical uh, prices. We're not uh, we're not unused to uh, kind of the the boom and bust periods. So this is a tough one. Um, if hopefully we're at the bottom now and starting to climb back up, uh, if that's the case, you know I think most of our, most of our producers will will make it through this period. Uh, but there's no question that that dairy and all of agriculture, uh, you know, faces these these cyclical uh, swings in price that uh, that can be pretty stressful. What should be our perception regarding the dairy producer in the country? I mean, with crops, obviously the economics of scale have forced producers to be larger to spread their risk. We've seen that in in, uh, in swine and in poultry. How about the dairy industry? Well, what's interesting about dairy is um, of all the the commodities that you just mentioned, dairy is the most diverse. Uh, we have clearly a number of very large, successful, productive farms, um, and we have a large number of small and medium-sized farms. So of all the commodities out there, dairy probably has the greatest spread of farm size of any. 
uh, from, from, from very small farms that have 8 to 10 cows to very large farms that have 10,000, 15,000 cows. So this is a, it's a challenge uh, as for an organization dealing with that kind of breadth. But, uh, you know, frankly, um, our members come together very well to deal with the issues facing the industry. And I'm, what I'm pleased about more, more than anything else is the degree of consensus and commitment to working together in this industry on the challenges that we face. Large or small, uh, producers really do work together to, to address these challenges. Most of the legislators who voted for the 2014 Farm Bill admit that it was not perfect policy. What about dairy policy? Has it stabilized, or are there areas that need improvement? Because your participation was not what many thought it would be. Well, as you know, Jeff, we made a major change in dairy policy in the 2014 Farm Bill. Uh, we got rid of a number of programs that were no longer working. Uh, the dairy price support program that had served this industry going back to the late 1940s was one policy that we scrapped because uh, it, it made sense no longer for the federal government to go into the marketplace, buy product uh, at times of low prices, put it into, into storage, and then sell that product back onto the market when prices begin to rise. Because what that does is it prolongs the difficulty facing the industry. You hold prices down by having that surplus product come on to the market at the very time you're trying to to get a, a market rally. Um, so that program is gone. The, the MILC program, the Milk Income Loss Program, uh, wasn't successful in providing the kind of stability that was envisioned for it uh, across our industry. And uh, we changed the, 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 the program in 2014 uh, from a program that focused mainly on price to one that focused on margin. Uh, the, the income over the cost of feed is the real calculation that we use in what is now called the margin protection program. That was a major change. And when you make a new policy change like that, it takes a while to, to get it right. Uh, my assessment of, of the dairy provisions of the 2014 Farm Bill today are that we, we do need some changes in them. They're not working um, the way we had hoped they would fully. Uh, and part of that is because it, it is a new program, and we didn't know exactly how this was going to be implemented. The other piece of it, though, is that there were some changes made um, in the deliberations on the Farm Bill, changes made by the Congress that had a negative impact on the, the function of the program. So as we look to the future, the program today is not working quite as we would like it to, but we think this is the right program for the future, having a focus on income over feed costs, focusing on margin is the program we need for the future. And having skin in the game where farmers are, like crop insurance, are purchasing risk management protection for their operation is key to a uh, to successful farm policies in this country in the future. So as we look at the situation today, we need to make some changes in the program. We've talked to people uh, on Capitol Hill um, about that, and uh, we'll be ready when the time is right uh, to be able to make some changes when Congress is ready to engage in, in that policy discussion. Do you think there will be a 2018 Farm Bill or another Farm Bill? Well, I think part of the answer to that question, Jeff, uh, both of those questions is, is uh, tell me what's going to happen in the 2016 elections facing us now. My crystal ball can't predict with any certainty what's going to happen. Um, it is possible that we won't get another farm bill because there have been, we saw it in the last debate in 2014, challenges to the coalition that has historically been able to put farm bills together and get them across the finish line. 
and we see challenges in the, some of the discussions in uh, the presidential and congressional elections coming up in 2016, that will have a lot to do with, with what happens there. Uh, my sense is, at the end of the day, yes, there will be another farm bill. Yes, the coalitions that have passed these bills in the past, that is, agriculture and the food community coming together uh, to pass a bill, um, I think that will happen. But it's, it is not a sure thing. And um, it, my concern, I think the concern of many of us in agriculture, is to talk about splitting the, the nutrition and food assistance provisions from the farm bill. Um, while I understand the appeal in some quarters, if that happens, um, I don't think we'll see another farm bill because agriculture represents about 2% of the, of the U.S. population, uh, no greater number uh, of that in terms of congressional representation, and we simply don't have the votes to get a farm bill done if you split a bill in that fashion. If you keep them together, and if you advance policies to provide a, a balance and you know control costs, I do think we'll have another farm bill in 2018, and we can um, keep having a important federal role in farm policy going forward. How has the paradigm changed at which we have environmentalists and nutritionists and farmers all together working toward a policy? Does it change the stew? Well, it changes us too, but I think even beyond that, it's become much more difficult because of a lot of other players. You know, some of the environmental groups we can work with in a collaborative fashion on farmland conservation provisions, and some, frankly, are out just to destroy farm programs. There is a bias in some of those groups against commercial conventional agriculture and work at cross-purposes with us. So it does make it very difficult to get a farm bill passed for the all of the forces arrayed against uh, developing consensus. But some of the traditional groups that have worked together in the past, you know, food groups, nutrition groups, uh, conservation, environmental groups, and ag commodity groups, among many others, have been able to work successfully in the past, and, and it's been more of an evolving process. We do have to contend with more adverse forces, uh, but you know, so far we've been able to hold those off and, at the end of the day, put together a package, which not, none of this is perfect. Uh, I think every commodity would say they need changes, improvements in their program, um, as would everybody else who's got a piece of that pie. But working together in a collaborative fashion, we have been able to put programs together which, uh, while not perfect, do help provide support to the interest of all those involved um, in, the, in these kind of major farm bills. Jim, I wonder aloud, and watching debate on the biotech disclosure legislation, if there won't be some additional agendas that will become a part of the food and farm policy debate. Well, they certainly have, and I think that's been one of the major changes in the course uh, over the course of, of my career, as the number of players, not just number of players, but the interests that are engaged in these discussions and debates now. Uh, it certainly has changed, and these are this is a very challenging environment in which to be trying to develop uh, federal policy. You alluded to the food labeling policy debate, and that's been a huge challenging issue. And part of the problem with a debate like that is there's all kinds of agendas being advanced that have little or nothing to do with the the policy that's being put forward or the 
the reasons behind a policy. You know, just an example on on this biotech food debate. I think everybody listening to your program understands the record of not only increased yields and the science base of these products, but their safety. And you know, the, the reality is that you wouldn't have the adoption of these technologies by farmers if they didn't work, if they didn't increase yields, if they didn't lower costs, and um, if they weren't safe. And their uptake within and use by the food industry, again, is part of that picture. But we have this debate and discussion from opponents of these products who allege in veiled ways that there are safety issues. Um, and it, it does create confusion in the minds of consumers. So this has been a really challenging issue, um, and we have many of them. That's just one example. Um, but it has been much more difficult to to address food policy issues um, at the, here in Washington with the the sort of evolution of the challenges that we face in agriculture. I would think uh, a large part of what happens to a dairy farmer's bottom line is from forces that are beyond their control, per se, the globe. We have the top two candidates for the White House that neither have been favorable toward trade. How do you approach their attitude toward a more closed border, and how would that affect dairy farmers and the dairy industry? Well, the bottom line is it would affect the dairy industry and all of agriculture negatively. And the best focus for me certainly is what we've experienced within dairy, and um, that's the best example I can give, where you look at the amount of milk produced in our dairy farms in this country today, roughly 210 billion pounds of milk a year. That's 30 billion pounds more milk than we consume in this country, than we can consume. And so if you don't have a market for that 30 billion pounds of milk, 15% of our production, if you don't have a market overseas in which to sell that product, that backs up into the U.S. market, what happens? It drives all milk prices down and it forces more farmers out of business. We are reliant upon export markets and trade uh, for our livelihood. And because of that, what is very important is that you become engaged in negotiation of trade agreements that advance your interests. The TPP agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, has been a has been fodder in, in the presidential campaign. With to, to your note, Jeff, both uh, major candidates expressing their opposition to that. Um, it makes good politics. I understand you can distort all these kinds of issues, but the bottom line for us is we have to have uh, trade agreements. We have to have trade policy that works for us. And the TPP agreement, like most trade agreements, is not perfect. We had concerns about the market access provisions in the agreement, uh, but we did our assessment, and on balance, there is no question that an act of TPP is is a step forward um, and will improve trade prospects for the U.S. dairy industry and, frankly, for all of U.S. agriculture. So, like it or not, we are in a world market, and it doesn't it doesn't work to kind of build walls, um, pull the covers over our head, and, pre- and pretend that we can somehow um, thrive. Uh, we do rely upon world trade in a two-way street. Uh, it helps drive our economy, and it does provide income to to our farmers. Two of the players in TPP, one Canada, one Japan, with one there's a question of compliance, and with another there's a question of access. Yeah, and those have been the two big issues for us throughout the negotiations um, on TPP. Uh, we pushed very hard 
to get increased market access into those two markets, Japan and Canada. And we knew that with TPP, there was going to be a push to grant some access into our market for New Zealand and other countries. So our key concern was a balanced agreement that we would be willing to accept increased access into our market, knowing that it was largely an inevitability, uh, but only to the extent that we got access into other markets. Pushed very, very hard to get Canada and Japan to open their markets. We were successful in getting some uh, market access opening into those markets, but frankly, not anything near what we had hoped to achieve. And that did affect then what was available uh, to provide access into the U.S. market with respect to dairy. So those those two issues are of concern to us con- on an ongoing basis. The biggest concern right now is, is Canada, even before TPP has been uh, reviewed and uh, adopted by the Congress or by Canada or most of their countries have not yet approved it. Even before that, the ink isn't even dry, and Canada is already taking steps to try to create barriers to the movement of U.S. milk products into Canada. That's a problem, and that's one of the concerns we had in this agreement. So we're pushing very, very hard on the enforcement uh, and implementation issues with TPP. Uh, these have to work for us. It's one thing to negotiate it on paper. If you're not going to get the access, it's not worth the paper it's written on. So in the case of Canada, they need to step up, be supportive of the agreement that they negotiated, and, and do it in good faith. And with Japan, that's going to be more of an ongoing issue. We got increased market access there. It's going to be more of a long game to increase access um, into Japan. So on balance, uh, long answer to your question, Jeff, we didn't get the market access that we had hoped to get. We got some market access improvements. Other countries that are part of TPP are even better in terms of the tariff reductions. We see real opportunity there. But some of the biggest improvements in TPP for the U.S. dairy industry are in the non-tariff barrier issues, these uh, so-called sanitary and phytosanitary issues, which are complicated to explain, uh, but it's the use of 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 um, regulations and restrictions to prevent market access. And the more we can do to take those non-tariff barriers out of the picture, the better off we'll be. And TPP goes a long ways to improving and addressing some of those issues. So what happens if the U.S. Congress either A, doesn't consider it, or says no to TPP? Where does that leave the dairy industry and milk producers? Well, I think the the real outcome here is going to be, at the end of the day, approval of TPP. Whether that happens yet in the lame duck session of Congress post-election or whether it happens um, early next year, uh, you look at the TPP agreement in the cold light of day, you look at its impact, potential impact on the U.S. economy um, and for the huge block of of trade that, that the countries in that agreement represent and the growing strategic importance of Asia, the countries in Asia that are part of TPP, um, I think it gets done. I just I don't question um, the the final outcome here. A lot of noise is going to be made. It's good political fodder for campaigns, uh, but uh, my my considered judgment right now is that TPP um, is adopted by the Congress either in the lame duck session, post-election, or in the first quarter of, of uh, the new year. Jim Lohan, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on Open Mic. There it is, Open Mic, and you have an open forum. Well, this is, for us, Jeff, the 100th anniversary of NMPF. 
we are celebrating a centennial year. And what's interesting, I think, to me, looking back, is we've had a chance to look at the organization's history over the last hundred years. And it's interesting that the issues that that, um, that helped form this organization, that farmers across the country came together back in 1916 to form a national milk producers federation. What's interesting is some of those, those same issues remain today. So, as you know, the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we've kind of reflected on some of that in this conversation here. But, you know, efforts to stabilize milk prices, which we talked about at the beginning of this talk and what farm bills are aimed at, is, is one of the principal reasons for the formation of National Milk Producers Federation 100 years ago. Um, addressing the the um, situation of, of imports and exports and making sure that there was a balance there has been a key focus of National Milk over the years. Uh, supporting food assistance and nutrition programs has always been important to us because of the importance of having consumer having a safe product for consumers and having that collaboration uh, the close working relationship between farmers and consumers um, our organization has long supported um, the, the nutrition and, and food programs because of the, the very nutritious product we're producing. Uh, one of the, the, the cornerstone products in, in the human diet with nine nutrients that milk provides is the number one source of in the American diet. Um, those are issues that we've long worked on, continue to work on them today. You know, we didn't talk about defending dairy from imitation dairy products, but our use of the real seal and efforts to make sure that consumers understand, you know, where where milk comes from and what is milk and what is not milk, uh, as we see efforts by others to market on the good um, halo uh, of milk is an ongoing challenge for us. Um, so f- for me, it's a great opportunity to lead this organization, humbled by the opportunity to um, provide representation to dairy farmers across the country and to be part of this great, strong, and productive industry. I think that we have very bright years ahead. I'm very happy to see the shifting focus and understanding in the scientific community on the role of, of milk fat. The, you know, the 25, 30 year demonization of milk fat is slowly turning around. And you would look at the, you know, butter sales and cheese sales, which have been the bright spot, frankly, for the industry in the last couple of years. Um, very bullish as we look to the future on, on the opportunities and trends there. So, well, we've got tough times right now. We're very, very happy with the strong base this organization and this industry has and think that it's a very, very bright future for the U.S. dairy industry, both in our market here as well as we, as we look more and more to the future looking at overseas markets. Our thanks to President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation, Jim Mulhern, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.